in both Notion and Typeform, what we did is we created a customer voice report. So we, uh, across all the different channels where we get feedback from customers, we would tag the feedback in a consistent, you know, the same way, the same tagging system so that we could compare apples to apples from our churn survey, our NPS, our support tickets, our customer success calls, our sales calls, et cetera. And then when you're able to have that data and also be able to tie it to specific customer profiles, like our enterprise customers ask for this or our admins ask for that versus our end users, et cetera. Uh, that's the type of granularity that actually is able to help the product team make better decisions because they know who they who they're building what for, right? Welcome to the June podcast. I'm Enzo, one of June co-founders. And my goal here is to help you get better at crafting great products and getting more people to experience them. In this podcast, you'll hear short interviews of product and growth leaders who share tips on how to launch and grow your product. Enjoy the show. So hi, David, and welcome to the June podcast. I'm really excited to have you here to chat about startups and one of the most exciting topics, in my opinion, which is customer success. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited too, and I love that topic. So a few words about you, in case people don't know you already. You were the CRO at Zingtree, an interactive decision tree platform. Prior to that, you were at Notion, where you led sales and customer success for over two years. At Notion, you were employee number 13, and you were the first employee in both sales and success. Prior to Notion, you were VP of customer success and sales at Typeform for almost five years, where you built and led a team of over 40 people. And more recently, you've been dedicating time to your own project and family. You're also angel investings and doing some adv advising for early stage B2B SaaS startups. So welcome, David. And maybe as a first question, did I miss anything about you? Um, no, just maybe just that we're both French is a, is a fun fact. Uh, I, I grew up in uh, the suburbs of Paris and, um, yeah, that, that's the only other thing. I think you did a, a great intro. Thanks. <laughs> and another fun fact is that our last names don't sound French. <laughs> that's also true. <laughs> so you and I have known each other for some time now, and there is something I always wanted to ask you. So it's, it's about Notion. You joined as one of the early success and sales employee, but before that you were VP at two other startups. It really seems like a risky move, at least not a common one. How do you think about your career moves and how do you recommend people listening to think about it? Yeah. Um, I do get that question a lot. And there are a number of people who thought I was crazy at the time. And it's not the first time or the last time people have thought I was crazy. Um, I think uh, what, what prompted that decision is a, a number of different factors. One is that I love the early stage of startups. I love, uh, like I'm a builder. I've actually also been a founder. Um, I love the types of challenges and the types of problems that you have to solve at the early stage. You have to be more scrappy, more resourceful because you have less resources. And I really like uh, that challenge and, and that stage. Um, so that's like what drove me to this opportunity with Notion when I spoke with them. And at the time, nobody had heard of Notion. So to your point, people were like, well, you know, what are you doing? Um, the other side is I love 
early stage. And conversely, as a company gets bigger and bigger, uh, there's inevitably some level of politics uh, that happen. Things slow down. You need you know more consensus, more approvals, and it's just not as much fun or as high energy as what I like. So that also was you know Typeform was past 200 people when I left. My team was quite big, and um, and I was feeling a little bit of that. I wasn't looking to leave, but when the opportunity presented itself, and lastly, from a from a financial perspective, which is always part of a career decision, I think the risk reward is optimal when you're at the very early stages. Because especially for a startup that already has some funding, you do take a lower cash compensation, but you get a lot more equity when you join amongst the first, you know, 10, 15, 20 employees, uh, like, you know, multiples higher than if you join as employee 50 or 100. And so I, I think, uh, you know, um, two of the startups that I've joined in the past, the equity hasn't been worth anything. Uh, but uh, in other cases, uh, that really that risk reward is really worth it yeah so that's the risk the financial risk is definitely something that people tend to underestimate i keep i keep giving this advice to new entrepreneurs i tell them like how are you going to survive in the last in the next you know 12 months and you should really think about that because if it becomes a problem for you then your customers problems are going to be behind yeah agreed one thing that uh, that I realized with June, and it took me some time, is actually the importance of you know customer success or success or support in a product-led motion. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you, since you you work for a lot of you know bottom-up you know PLG companies, like what why do you think your job or success is so important there? Yeah, I think. Um... I think there's a nuance between success and support, and maybe that's not what we want to get into in, the, in this conversation. But um, I think the reason why support and success are so important is that they help in, in PLG companies is that they help bridge the gap between what your product is capable of and w the way your users are actually using your product. And there's always a gap between what's possible and what your customers are actually doing. And your the humans on your team, so the support team reactively, the customer success team, hopefully proactively, are helping bridge that gap. They're learning why there is a gap, and they're providing that feedback uh, to the product team so that they can productize, you know, fit, bridging that gap. And hopefully on the product side, that gap is always growing because you're always adding more features and more kind of complexity to the product. And hopefully with the help of the customer success and customer support teams, you're constantly trying to bridge that gap and productize um, the, the things that can be productized. So, um, so I think that's like conceptually as a founder, that's the way I would think about, you know, the, the value of uh, success and support. And on top of it as like a go-to-market leader, the other thing to think about is uh, when customers interact with a human on support or on success or, you know, an onboarding specialist, like uh, some companies have, uh, they always generate a higher conversion rate and lower churn. It's just across the board. Uh, so in the early days when you're trying to get to demonstrate that your product can be sticky and learn about your ICP and all these things, um, it's really valuable to, ha to have people that are helping, you know, create a better experience. Yeah, I love when you when you talk about this framework of you call it the knowledge gap, gap right, or something like that. Yeah. yeah, it's a really it's a really great way for a founder to, you know, 
to perceive the you know why why these things exist. Yeah, it's, especially when you when you're you in the early days, you're like, well, is it really as important? But it's really important as you're finding that perfect product market fit. Uh, to, to bridge that gap. Anyway, yeah, I agree. No, that makes sense. I, I, I love. I could I could speak about this gap for forever actually. And I think in the in the very early days when you have barely a product, it's probably the only way to even collect the feedbacks. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I was getting at. You're you're absolutely right. So so when you when you think about this gap and and you know and pushing from you know the the success side of things to the product side of things, you know, feedback. I think there is one big unspoken truth which is that sometimes people in success have a lot of, you know, collect a lot of feedback and push this request to the product teams, but these things never get prioritized. I'd love to hear what's a company where you worked, where the collaboration was the smoothest and why. And if you have an advice also maybe for companies that struggle with customer success and product working together, what would that be? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I, I totally agree. And in the companies I worked at, it's often not unspoken. It's just the truth. <laughs> uh, okay. it's, it's hard. It's hard to influence the product roadmap. Uh, and it's hard. The product team's job is really hard to balance, you know, delivering the product vision and continuously improving that and, uh, like iterating on things that already exist based on customer feedback. Uh, the place where that worked the best for me was that notion and in, in both Notion and Typeform, what we did is we created a customer voice report. So we, uh, across all the different channels where we get feedback from customers, we would tag the feedback in a consistent, you know, the same way, the same tagging system, so that we could compare apples to apples from our churn survey, our NPS, our support tickets, our customer success calls, our sales calls, et cetera. And then when you're able to have that data and also be able to tie it to specific customer profiles, like our enterprise customers ask for this or our admins ask for that versus our end users, et cetera, uh, that's the type of granularity that actually is able to help the product team make better decisions because they know who, they want, who they're building what for, right? And um, I think at Typeform, we did a great job with our customer voice. And where we stopped short a little bit of being able to influence, and this is something we improved over time, was also being able to influence the OKRs at the beginning of the quarter. Because you can have all the greatest feedback in the world if the product team is not, uh, it's not one of their priorities that quarter or that year to fix something that you're getting a lot of feedback on, it's going to be really hard to get it on the roadmap. So, you know, before you even get the feedback, making sure that uh, you're aligned on the product team's goals and OKRs, uh, I think, uh, is important. And that's what works so well at Notion, where uh, the founders and the product team really wanted to improve the product to make it more enterprise ready. So they were really attentive to what our enterprise customers' uh, feedback was. Love it. Yeah, I think... I think collecting the feedback is one thing, and this is, it tends to be where people stop. I think the second half is really, you know, how do you go with the implementation? And I think you call out something very important, having the right context, making sure that you bring the, the context that, you know, sorry, the feedback that kind of matters given the current context and priorities. I think that's what, uh, you know, helps out during this, you know, process. Yeah. Agreed. And is there, is there one thing that you brought uh, to a product team that, you know, ended up being productized that had a good impact on, you know, on the volume of conversations and really had an impactful 
you know, in, yeah, impactful consequence that maybe you could share? Yeah, I think th there's a, there's several different um, ways that I could answer this question. I think, you know, the single biggest impact feature that was built was when Notion built the single sign-on feature, uh, which allowed us to have a real differentiator between our enterprise plan and our team plan and helped us uh, justify the additional cost uh, pricing of, um, of our enterprise plan. And that was just the first of many enterprise features. If you go to their pricing page today, you'll see that there's a lot more, but that was just the beginning of, of unlocking, you know, value in our, in our enterprise plan. Um, your question was more about uh, reducing the amount of conversation so that uh, the product is a little bit more uh, intuitive. I think the, the improvements or change that had the biggest impact on the volume of conversations uh, at Typeform, and I'm thinking about this for the support team as opposed to the customer success team, was changing the flow of how a customer or user can contact us. So our free users used to be able to just contact support directly from the product. And instead, from the product, they, we switched it so that they could access our help center, which we had just improved. Uh, and then from the help center, they could contact support. But just having that extra step um, meant that a lot of customers ended up self-serving rather than contacting support. Um, and I'll just share a little thought on that. Uh, this is also an, an example of where it's so important to have KPIs that are kind of more holistic. Because if the KPI for your support team or your education team is just, you know, reduce the amount, the volume of tickets then the incentive will be to add friction and like, you know, force somebody into a different flow, which may or may not be the best experience for the customer. And because um, you're increasing the effort and reducing the volume. So uh, just something to keep in mind when optimizing that stuff. Yeah. I heard about this concept also as leading and lagging metrics. So let's say you have a leading metric, which is the number of tickets that get closed. And then the lagging metric is, you know, the retention for people that didn't open a ticket, right? Or something like that. This is very popular in e-commerce. I, I didn't know that, but yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, it's very popular in e-commerce because whenever you touch something, you want to optimize the conversion rate in the checkout. Mm -hmm. But actually, uh, it might be, you might increase, you know, the return rate. And so oftentimes in e-commerce, you would use the, the lagging metric uh, as, as the return rate like a control. Yeah, we, uh, we had something similar uh, also at Typeform where we uh, added a limit to how many, uh, how many results you could collect with a, on the free plan. And what that did is it did force a number of people to upgrade, but those same, that kind of increase in upgrade volume, three months later, that, that increase it all churned. So it increased like some more revenue, but then they all, uh, all that increase churns out within three months. So it's not a sustainable growth and it uh, is not a better experience. So, yeah. 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 Type, Typeform, there is a lot of great content uh, people can check around on Typeform and how, you know, they managed to handle so many tickets on free customers and what were the consequences. I think there is a great talk of the co-founder at Sastock on stage and he shares a lot about, you know, the cost of handling these tickets and why he's a believer that early stage startups should do it. Yeah. Yeah. We can talk about that on a future podcast if you want, but I, that's also a, a long conversation. <laughs> I'd love to. I'd love to. What, what are things that you try to automate, but then you had to make them manuals again? 
Do you have any stories across your experience that you can share? Yeah. Uh, the, the one that comes to mind is uh, at Typeform, we, uh, we wanted to collect data on why users were churning. That was one of our biggest challenges in, in the early days. So we created a churn survey that people would fill out. And I started wondering, were we asking the right questions in the churn survey? Were we capturing like the real insights that we want to get out of customers that are choosing to leave us? So I switched that from automated to manual. Uh, at the time, we were using intercom. So anytime somebody clicked on unsubscribe, it popped up a chat. And the chat was actually directly with me. We were very small, so like talking about Scrappy. So it would, it would start a conversation with me, and I wanted to A make sure that we were asking the right questions in the survey. So kind of having that conversation and B also see, is there anything that would save that customer? Like if I said, Hey, uh, in the next two months are on us, just don't leave us and try these other use cases. Would that make somebody stick around, um, or not? And, um, and of course that was not sustainable because there was way too much volume, uh, for me, but it was insightful to help me decide, you know, what to then re kind of productize afterwards. Okay, so that that's phase was temporary only. Then you went back to automating a lot of that stuff, right? Yeah, mostly because we uh, I was uh, completely unsuccessful at uh, retaining people who had already decided to churn. <laughs> so it, it it did make me realize, you know, the time to save people from churn or to improve retention is not you know at their renewal or when they're ready to churn. It's you know it's actually onboarding. It's making sure that they get a very better experience at the beginning. Makes total sense. Yeah. You have a, a controversial view on the, the return of investment on the, on the CSM. And uh, I know it will take some time, but can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. I, I wrote uh, a, a very long blog post. Very, it's like 20 minute read or something, a blog post about it, but I'll try to do a quick summary. Um, at a high level, there's no debate that CSMs are essential for a B2B SaaS business to succeed because it's recurring revenue and you need somebody to make sure that customers are renewing and expanding and et cetera. So, you know, you need a CSM. The question is how many CSMs do you need and what's their ROI? So to be able to measure ROI, it implies that you need to know what's the baseline. So what, like, what's the revenue, um, without a CSM. And then you also need to be able to measure the incremental value that a CSM brings. And in my blog post, and I'm, I have a strong opinion about this, uh, I don't think either of those are actually quantifiable. Uh, just briefly, the baseline, you would need a identical control group, which most companies uh, don't have. Uh, so if you're working on enterprise accounts, you can't just say, oh, well, our, our team accounts or lower tier plan, this is their retention rate. And therefore, you know, this is the improvement or this is the baseline. And, uh, and the other thing is you can't do a before versus after analysis because, um, you know, just, just like when you AB test, you have to AB test at the same time. You can't do a, a before and after. And if you want to know why you can read, <laughs> read more in the blog post. And, uh, and the other side is the impact of the CSM. So. Uh, let's say there's a great improvement in net retention. Can you really attribute 100% of that to the customer success team? How much of that is product? How much of that is sales closing? You know, better ICP customers. Um, how much of that is competitors? Uh, and also, if if things get worse, uh, is it, was there a big bug or a breach or you know stuff like that that might um, influence those metrics? 
And also, uh, there's a lot of impacts and value that a CSMs bring that are intangible. So, for example, we were just talking about uh, influencing the product roadmap. Uh, that's extremely valuable, especially in the early days, but I think it's always very valuable. And that's not something you can add a monetary value to. So the point is calculating the ROI, which is something I tried to do before I kind of had this realization, is not the right way to think about it. But you still need to figure out, like, how many CSMs do you need? And so in, in the blog post, I, I recommend uh, a certain framework to follow to figure out how many CSMs do you need. And basically, it's figuring out how much time do you want your CSMs to spend with each account, which is a finite number. How many hours do your CSMs have available in a year? And therefore, how many accounts can they manage? And it's a little bit, there's a few nuances there, but that's kind of the, the, the thought process. I love it. Yeah, it's uh, at least there is a bit of focus in this chaos, right? Of like having human labored dedicated to something. I think it's a it's um it's a tough problem to solve. As a founder, I can tell you it's very hard to estimate it, what kind of like yeah humans you need for that. It is, and and uh, yeah, it's in different pro personalities of leaders. Some per personalities will say. You know, I need three more CSMs, and other people say I'm, I'm fine the way I am, and uh, and so, yeah, uh, I agree with you. And I think the amount of CSM you add probably has a consequence on how product-led you become, right? If you can solve the problem with more humans, maybe you're gonna gonna productize less things, right? Maybe. What do you think? I, th I think it depends a lot on the DNA of the company. Uh, at Typeform, we were obsessed with productizing everything. Uh, in, in a good way, I think. Um, and at Notion as well, actually, for that matter. But they're both like PLG, pure PLG companies. Uh, it's true that if, if the CSM can bridge a gap that exists, uh, you know, it's kind of like product teams often put a lower priority on improvements that, have, that already have a workaround, even if it's not ideal. They're like, oh, you know, Yes, this doesn't really work, but they could do this and it could kind of work. So we're not going to build that right away. Um, so I guess the CSM could be one of those workarounds <laughs> and, and deprioritize something that, you know, maybe should be higher prioritized. That makes a ton of sense. Yeah, I think, I think overall for most of these topics, uh, being intentional and, you know, thinking about a culture and a kind of organization and product strategy that you want to have, I think this is usually the starting point and usually this has the biggest consequence on, on how you staff your company. Yeah. I've seen that many times. That that makes a ton of sense. But I, I, there is... I'll, add, I'll, I'll just add, one of the things that really, uh, that I loved about how Ivan and Akshay talked about Notion before I joined and when I joined early, uh, they said, we, did, we don't just want to be a 100 millionaire or a company. We want to be a 100 millionaire or a company with fewer than 100 employees. And that's setting an, an extra boundary on our growth, where it's not just growth at all costs, uh, which was normal back in the day. You know, these days it's not the norm. It was more like, let's grow really quickly, but let's be really smart and thoughtful about how we scale and not just throw humans at problems, which at Typeform, I think we were guilty of a little bit. You know, labor is also cheaper in Barcelona and Typeform had raised a lot of money. And maybe we threw humans at certain problems that we could have um, kind of engineered out. Love that. There should be a name for these companies. Like WhatsApp was the same. There should be a name for this way of uh, building up businesses. I think it's amazing. Yeah, you can coin it. 
<laughs> I'll, I'll figure something else. <laughs> cool. I have one question from uh, from so when I when I went around my team to to prepare for this interview, I actually realized that Alberto, uh, who is our generalist, is wearing many hats. He's doing a lot of product, onboarding, oh. sales, you know, and it's his first job out of college after studying engineering, like you. I'd love to yeah to ask you what kind of advice you would have for him for his career. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of thoughts. One of my thoughts is I don't, I don't often like generic, generic career advice. It shouldn't always be kind of tailored to the individual, but I'll still share like a, a few ideas. Um, one of the things that I, I think I, you know, partially by design, but there's a lot of luck is choosing the right company over the right role. Uh, when I joined Typeform, I took a 50% pay cut because uh, I was moving to Barcelona and I didn't. Get, I was moved from a v VP role to uh, a head of role, and uh, but I really loved the founders and I still do. <laughs> and I also really loved the product. And I was like, this is a cool company. I want to be part of it. And uh, and you know, it obviously worked out well for me. So choosing the company, uh, and then when you're in the right company, uh, you know. Focus on always being learning, being curious, uh, reading a lot. Um, you know, I think that's self-explanatory. <laughs> um, everybody says, you know, work hard and work, you know, smart, not just hard. But I also think that a positive attitude goes a long way in, uh, in the way you're perceived in the organization, like having a can-do attitude. Like, yeah, we can do anything as opposed to, the person that often says like, oh, we can't do that, or we already tried that or whatever. So that positive attitude, I think, is, is important to, to foster. Um, something that really served me well, uh, especially at Typeform, was building a strong network of other people and other startups. So um, finding other startups that are not competitors, but that are in similar stages, similar challenges. Uh, I've learned a ton from peers from, I mentioned Intercom, Prezi, uh, you know, Slack, like a lot of other great companies uh, that I really admired and learning how they did things. It also gave me more credibility than when I went to my leaders and said, uh, I think we should do this because this is what I learned from these other places. Um, and another piece of advice that I got that I really liked was um, inevitably you're going to get frustrated because it's startup life. Like <laughs> there's things that are just like super frustrating, but what's great about startups, especially in early stages is that things are constantly changing. So anything that's really frustrating you, you know, six months from now, provided you stick around, you'll be like, I don't even remember that thing was, was bothering me. Uh, but on the flip side, things that you're like super happy about and that you love may also change. And that's just something to be aware of and kind of feel comfortable with that constant change, uh, constant kind of ambiguity and, um, and, uh, especially if you, especially if you join with some sort of generalist role as you did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think th that's again, the positive, like, uh, if Alberto is, uh, doing a bunch of different things, uh, I think that's great. And having that can do attitude and just taking on whatever's thrown at you, um, provided you're not burning yourself out, I think is, is great. And, um, and for me, like, uh, a part of choosing the right company and you kind of often feel this in the interview process is like, what's the vibe of the company? Am I going to have fun here? 
because I think life is too short and I think you spend a lot of time at work and, uh, and I, you know, I, I personally think it's really important to have fun at work. So those would be my, my kind of advice about picking a company and how to behave there. And then last, like, uh, I briefly mentioned at the beginning too, but, uh, Equity is really like the, the way to grow your own personal wealth is through equity. It's not through salary, especially in early stage startups. So make sure you understand the equity side and, um, and negotiate for it. So that's the, I love the list. You, you landed in a great startup. So congratulations. <laughs> uh, he doesn't know yet. It's his first role. <laughs> yeah, I, that actually. You know what? I, I should have said that. I'm glad you said that because at Typeform, we hired a lot of people who it was their first job or certainly their first job in tech because we were in Barcelona and there wasn't that many other companies. And A, I think we totally spoiled some people because they didn't realize how good they had it or how great of an experience this was. And B, there was a certain sense of entitlement that or, that was created after a while that like, oh, well, we should have this or we should have that. So another piece of advice would be kind of stay humble and like just be grateful for um, the things you have. It's a great list. I'll definitely some, uh, still uh, some of these items from you. And I was definitely guilty from, uh, from not being patient in my first tech, uh, tech job, uh, cause the company ended up changing a lot faster than I thought. And, you know, back then the structure of the product department was not really, uh, matching my expectations. So definitely be patient. It's tough. It's tough to be patient, especially yeah. when you're young. I totally agree. And yeah, and, and it, and it does sometimes feel like, oh my God, this, co this company doesn't know what they're doing. Like really we're doing this or we're not doing that. And it's like, yeah, but in three months, you know, everything's going to change. So don't worry about it. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. I wanted to touch a little bit on data since, uh, you know, we're an ITX company and we're, it's pretty much my favorite topic. I love how you refer to data as a starting point for experimentation. You share about that in a couple of your talks online. Do you have an example you can share where you've used data as a starting point in your role and how it turned, you know, to be useful for the company? Yeah. Uh, also one of my favorite topics. So, um, I think, so I guess the first thing I'd say about data is, uh, data should be empowering and hopefully not paralyzing. And uh, in the early stages at Typeform and at Notion, we did not have good data. So A, our data, data was hard to get access to, and B, it was unreliable. And uh, so you need to be comfortable making decisions based on your intuition uh, at the beginning until you have a data team or better data or a great tool like June. <laughs> um, so as you gain, yeah, as you gain access to data, Uh, then your decisions or my decisions became more data informed. So it wasn't necessarily a, a decisions exclusively based on data, but rather, you know, leveraging data to point you in the right directions to help you make the right decisions. And at Typeform, there were a few examples of that. We had a great data team. And um, at one point when we were trying to figure out how do we improve retention, uh, improving retention, as I mentioned earlier, if you do it when customers are ready to churn, it's too late. You want to create the right behaviors early on. So what are the right behaviors to create that will lead to retention and expansion, et cetera. And um, so the data team did a regression analysis and they found 
what are the behaviors that, um, that we should promote? It turns out that some of it was totally consistent with our intuition of what we were doing so far, like helping them improve the design of their type form. And others were things that we hadn't really thought of or didn't realize. Like for example, how many pro features an account's using. So if, if an account is only using logic jump as the only pro feature that they upgraded for, uh, and I guess context is type form at the time, the only reason to upgrade was to gain access to, to more advanced features. Um, so if, if they only were using one feature, one pro feature, they were much more likely to churn than if they were using two features. And the big drop off was at three features. As soon as they were using three pro features, they were much more likely to stick around. And so that helped us understand what features we wanted to promote, but you don't promote a feature, right? You promote the use cases that are relevant for your persona. So we then tied it back to what use cases uh, are most use with those features and we would promote um, that kind of educational and inspirational content to our users early on in their journey with Typeform so that hopefully they adopt those features and, and become more sticky. Um, and so th that was one analysis that I really liked. Another one that, that was really helpful was um, we learned that our users were much stickier, kind of like in the famous, like if you have seven friends on Facebook, then you're going to be on Facebook for the rest of your life. Uh, in, in our case, it was, if you build like three, if you have three active forms, then you're, you're going to be very sticky as opposed to, you know, just using one form. So once we learn that through data, then it's like, okay, how do we leverage that data to create uh, great, you know, um, strategies to improve retention. And what we did is, uh, we were trying to figure out, you know, when's the right time to inspire. If we overload people with information when they're onboarding, that may be too much. It may be hard for them. It, it, it may just not be interesting for them at the time because they're trying to do the use case that they signed up for. And therefore, what we did is we looked at uh, the data of how, uh, how like, the volume of responses they were getting to their type forms. And as soon as the responses dropped, we assumed they were towards the end of their use case. And then we engage with them promoting uh, the next use case. And that actually was our most impactful uh, campaign. It, it helps customers stick around and try the next use case. And um, yeah, so I hope those two examples are, are helpful and I hope I explain them in a way that was understandable. <laughs> they're super clear to me. And I think they are, they're really um, explanatory and uh, really inspiring. And I think it makes a lot of sense to, you know, not flood people with information too upfront. And I think actually that reminds me another discussion we had. Something you said that really struck me is that to build a great product experience, you need to deliver quickly the value prop, but you, mm -hmm. you also should, you know, sell on that vision later on or inspire people later on. And I think the example you gave about Typeform is pretty much about that. I think you mentioned that maybe, you know, Notion was the, doing something similar. I, I really haven't heard that framework beside you. So would you mind telling me how this worked at some of your jobs? Sure. Yeah, I think the, what I am, was very aware of at both Typeform and Notion and Zingtree for that matter, is that uh, there's a learning curve to our product. And even though you can do kind of some of the basics pretty easily, 
uh, that's not what you know. That's not what we're there for. We're there for the more sophisticated use cases and, and more sophisticated customers. So, on one hand, when you're onboarding a customer, you want it to feel easy, approachable, and uh, and give them some quick wins. On the other hand, you need to sell a vision to them or get them inspired or confident that they can actually achieve or solve their problem uh, with your tool. And if they're able to see that in, as part of the onboarding, see that, uh, oh, Typeform can actually do these sophisticated like quizzes or registration forms or whatever. And Notion actually can be used as a project and task management uh, with databases and relational database and everything. You don't need to explain to them the nuts and bolts of how to build that yet. What you want to do is uh, show them that this is possible so that they're willing to invest the time in that learning curve to learn how to do that with your product uh, as opposed to doing it with another product. So that's that, amazing. That's kind of, yeah. How does it work in practice? Do you have an example in practice? Yeah. So, so one of the things we did at Typeform, for example, was uh, when somebody landed in the product, we made them watch a video that was a very short video, but very like kind of fun, but also inspiring of like, these are some of the awesome things you can do with Typeform. And the goal there was not to show them how to use the product. In fact, I don't even think we showed any part of the builder. It was just to show like, this is what Typeform can empower you to, to build. And, and then hopefully after seeing that video, they're like, yes, Typeform can do the things that I wanted to do. And with Notion, uh, I was more on the enterprise side. So it was more one-to-one. Uh, so I, I definitely did that when I was doing my like sales pitches and demos, uh, but it wasn't uh, productized. Makes ton of sense. You should totally coin that concept. <laughs> cool. I'll think about it. Thanks. <laughs> it's not the ham moment. It's like the inspiration uh, further down the funnel uh, moment. Mm -hmm. I love it. I think it definitely resonates with my experiences with recent products like the one we're actually using to record the podcast they have really good oh, cool. very good videos when you're on board like top quality and uh yeah basically anything they show are features that i don't use or you know future professional recording studios for you know june that we can't afford today <laughs> very cool we are reaching the end of the podcast david it was great to have you. I'll make sure to add all the references you mentioned in the description of the episode. One last question before we wrap it up. If people want to continue the discussion with you, where can they find you? Uh, yeah, um, uh, Twitter is probably the best place. Um, and my handle is at David C. Apple, I think. I should double check that. <laughs> I'll make sure to point at the end of the episode. Cool. Thanks. Thanks so much, David. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.